scarcity and abundance. You know, you, I'm part Greek. My grandparents came from Greece. And you give a Greek a microphone and ask him to talk about fishing. And I think, man, sign me up. But this is a common paradox we live in. How do we live in a world where scarcity and abundance live side by side? This valley is a great example of that. We live in the midst of this glorious creation, this gift of mountains and streams and rivers and fish, and yet we know that there is pockets of scarcity. Not necessarily poverty, that may be true, but scarcity of the heart. An inability to see the gifts of abundance that are here all around us. The easy way out of this sermon is to talk about recognition. That's what most pastors would do with this particular text. Jesus made six or seven post-resurrection appearances to the disciples, and in every one of them, they didn't recognize him. That's a curious phenomenon. But I want to talk a little bit about scarcity and abundance and how we respond to recognition. You know, the whole history of civilization is one of movement from scarcity to abundance and from abundance to scarcity. A great book, if you haven't read it, by Israeli sociologist and historian called Sapiens. And he traces the history of how humans develop and move and migrate, usually when the infrastructure begins to crumble. What do people do? They have two choices. They either try something new and move on, or they collapse and they die. And History is full of prime examples of both of those. I think the tension between abundance and scarcity is a really, really interesting struggle for many of us who have been blessed with a sense of abundance. I'll tell you a story from the corner care unit of about 20 years ago when Bush was president, uh, George W. Bush. I was on call one weekend and one of his cabinet members was at the ranch for a cabinet meeting and got admitted with a heart condition. He was a wonderful man, a Cuban refugee, an immigrant, legal immigrant, became elected senator. I probably not legally cannot say his name, that's okay. But he became a senator from a major state, a cabinet member, and he got admitted to the CCU in a strange town. In the bed next to him, protected by a wall, was a homeless man from East Waco who lived under the bridge of an interstate. He was a refugee. He was homeless. He was a drug addict. He was a convicted sex offender. He had no money. And he got admitted with the same diagnosis that the secretary of a presidential cabinet got admitted with. They received the same care. They had the same nurses, the same doctors, the same housekeepers. And I've been blessed enough in my medical career to live in a community where our two hospitals are faith-based. One is Catholic, the other is Baptist. But they both took the mission to care for those that live in scarcity seriously. And they helped those people live into the abundance of health care that we could provide. So these two patients one from a life of abundance, the other from a life of scarcity, got the same treatment and the same outcome. The senator was actually discharged a day before the other patient 
he came back the next day to bring gifts to the staff and the nurses and the housekeepers, and he knew about his neighbor in the coronary care unit, and he brought him a gift. How do we respond with abundance? Well, we respond with gratitude. That's the only way we can live with the paradox and tension between two polar opposites, a life of gratitude. What broke my heart about that particular scenario was I was making rounds on the Saturday morning after we were ready to discharge both patients, and I was rounding with two residents, family medicine residents, who always started their day with a Bible study. And I thought that was quite interesting. I'm glad to see them taking their faith seriously enough to do that. But on the way out of the coronary care unit, one resident turned to the other and said, I don't know why we're wasting our time on this guy. He's going to go back to the streets and get readmitted with the same problems in three weeks. They didn't make the tension, they didn't make the connection between the abundance that we've been giving and the scarcity that was people were drowning in. And I, I really probably can't bring them, blame them. They were young, they were inexperienced. But to me, the disconnect between the gifts we've been given, this abundance in the midst of scarcity, really calls us to live not only out of gratitude like the senator lived, but out of a sense of sharing of community. What the, God, what the disciples did by the seashore in Galilee, they built a fire and shared a meal. That's what abundance is all about. It's about looking inside and giving back to the world and trying to meet their needs. You know, gratitude is such an important part of the human condition, we forget how easy it can be. We take our abundance for take our abundance for what it is and we assume that it's our right. Gratitude emerges from abundance. Scarcity leads to fear. And we have all these fears that lock us up. We, it locks our hearts up so that we can't outreach to others with a sense of gratefulness. I put a pacemaker once in a little 92-year-old lady. I, I don't think I've told this story before. She was trying to raise her 17-year-old great-grandson. Now, generational poverty, for those of you that don't know, is a real problem in this country. This lady wanted to see her 17-year-old son go to college like her children did and her, and her grandchildren. She was raising him. She had a heart rate of 30. <laughs> she said, Doc, I just need to feel better. I got a boy to raise and get him through college. 92 years old. I put a pacemaker in her and asked her the next week to see her stitches, get out, get out with her stitches. She said, how are you feeling, Miss Smith? She said, Doc, I'm looking at grass from the top down. <laughs> That's gratitude. You know, the thing is, gratitude calls us to action. Gratitude is not just an emotional response to tragedy or to scarcity or to need. Gratitude flows out of the gifts we've been given. It ties into the theme that we've all been talking about through these last few weeks of stewardship. Gratitude becomes relational. It calls us to relate 
to those around us. Like the senator related to the homeless man that lives under a bridge. You know, the other interesting thing about gratitude is it really comes to fruition at the end of life. Unfortunately, we sometimes pass so quickly through this journey with all its turmoil and all its challenges and all its gifts that we don't really give thanks to what we've been given until the very last days of our life. And I, I can't tell you how many bedsides I've sat at in the last few weeks of life and listened to stories of gratitude and what they've accomplished, what, they've, what is important to them. And a lady named Carol Gilliland, a sociologist of gender, has an interesting commentary on that. If you, if you ask men at the end of their life what they're most thankful for, it's always accomplishments. What they've done with their businesses, what they've done with their families, what they've done with their work, what boards they've sat on. If you ask women what they're grateful for, it's relational. It's about their friends and their children. We seem to be wired a little bit differently in how our resp hearts respond to, to the gifts we've been given. But despite the fact that I say that Scarcity drives our fear, fears. Gratitude has the power to emerge from abundance. And that, I think, is the gift that happened that, by that campfire. Not only did the disciples eat and share a meal with the one they finally recognize, but what do they do after? They go back out into the world. They tell the story. We find room to breathe, not only in periods of scarcity, but in acts of abundance. There's a great song by Pearl Jam called Just Breathe. A great version of it by Willie Nelson, by the way, too. And it's a very interesting look about how important relationships are to the human condition. Pearl Jam says, I understand that every life must live. As we sit alone, I know someday we must go, but I'm a lucky man to count on both hands ones I love. Some folks just have one, others got none. Stay with me. Just breathe. And I can imagine Jesus saying those words to the disciples by the campfire. Just stay with me. Just eat this meal. Just breathe. The line ends with stay with me. You're all I see. Did I see? Say that I need you. The song captures that tension of the needs of the human heart to be connected one to another. I don't think we're meant to go through this life in solitude. We may feel a scarcity of the heart, but I think we're called to become community. And that's what this great story is about. It's about the forging of an infant community that something happened. Something very real, something very tangible happened. They tried something different, and they caught fish. You see, we get boxed into ways of thinking. If it's something has worked, well, let's just do it again. Well, then it, something changes and it doesn't work anymore. I mean, we've all heard the classic definition of insanity, trying the same thing over and over again and expecting the outcome to be different. The disciples, who are fishermen, and I think that's the other curious thing about this story, you've got a carpenter or a carpenter's son telling a bunch of fishermen how to fish. But he, Jesus said, try something different. Break out of your mold. Think outside the box. 
how do we do this? I don't know. It's hard. And we get trapped in our ways of doing things as individuals, as nations, as churches, as communities. And it's only when we cast to the other side, only when we try something different can the kingdom of God break in. So I think this is calling us to cast a new cast to the other side. How to live with the reality of scarcity when we're surrounded by abundance. And everybody who's a full-time resident or a part-time visitor in this valley understands this notion of abundance and scarcity. So how do we break down our barriers? I would say there's four barriers we need to think about. One is personal. How do we change our way of understanding our relationship to each other? Secondly is communal. How do we encourage our communities to be creative in their understanding of this tension between scarcity and abundance? Each community, whether it's a school of higher education, a school board, whatever, we're called to be creative, to cast to the other side. Nationally, we're in a real paradox of scarcity and abundance. Both parties, I believe, and, and I'm not taking sides at all, are trapped into old ways of doing things. Whether either will have the courage to try something new, I don't know. I really don't know. But I think we're called as a nation to think about that and to pray about that and to act on that. And I think, finally, we're called spiritually to try something new. Try something di different with your spiritual life. Read something new that challenges your hearts to open up, to experience the glory of God in the midst of this unbelievable abundance we've been given. There's a great scene I'll close with from the series Friday Night Lights. You remember the high school coach from West Texas and the football team who goes from nowhere? Remember the sign above the locker room door that they always tapped on on their way out? Clear eyes. Full hearts can't lose. We're called to live with full eyes, clear eyes. We're called to live with full hearts, abundant hearts. And we're called to go back into the world and share that vision, share that glory, share that kingdom. And then, like Coach Taylor said, we can't lose. Amen.